Welcome to the Sermon B-Side Podcast, a podcast of Liberty Church in the Harrisburg region of Central Pennsylvania. Sermon B-Side is designed to be a resource to answer your questions and to go deeper into the conversation started by each week's sermon. Hello, and welcome to the Liberty B-Sides podcast with your B-team back for a Christmas special. Anthony here, pastoral resident, and we got with us Greg. Also pastoral resident. Howdy. Nice to see you, Greg, on this fine, cool December day. Um, So today we have, instead of the bag of presents we have, which, albeit, would have been much, much more fun, we have here a bag of questions. Greg is beaming with excitement. He can't even hold it in. Best kind of bag. Best kind of bag. But we have a bag of questions from you, our faithful audience, uh, asking questions about some of the sermons we've done in this Advent series. So for this past Advent series, we are going through some carols and pulling out helpful themes and scriptures associated with those carols and really diving into what we're singing and the truths that we're singing as we sing these Christian these Christmas carols. It's been helpful for me. Uh, I haven't spent a lot of time uh, really thinking through the words of a lot of these carols, and it's been helpful to pause, to take a break from our sermon series so far, and just to look in and really study these carols and examine um, some of the truths in them. So, Greg, they, has this series been helpful for you? It has. It has. Honestly, even as like I've been going to church and then, you know, going to Cornerstone Coffee and hearing carols in the background, it's been helping me actually pay attention to what words are being sung and listen to them and just being amazed at like, there are people throughout our culture right now in coffee shops and Walmarts and Targets hearing the gospel and maybe even not knowing it, which is, Mm -hmm. it's kind of a beautiful thing, um, you know, that that light is still shining through to the world. Yeah, yeah, it really is awesome. And I'm not even familiar with some of the carols that we've talked about as yeah. much. Like this week's Love Came Down at Christmas, I, I can't say I've heard it a ton. No. Um, so it's helpful to hear Matt kind of walk through it and, and hear the history of it. Um, but that leads us into our first question, which came straight out of, straight out of yesterday's sermon. Uh, so in this sermon, Matt was talking about the love of God. And Matt asked us as a church to confirm that God indeed does love everyone. And so the question asker, and I think asked a really helpful question, pointing to Romans 9, where Paul is quoting the Old Testament account of Jacob and Esau, and and says there, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. And asking, how do we reconcile that with this idea that that God loves everyone? Yeah, and that's like an excellent question. And honestly, it is a super... Difficult question to answer, so we're going to do an inadequate job mm-hmm. of answering it right now. But basically, um, so I found a really helpful framework in scholasticism, which is a method of doing theology. Um, you think of medieval scholastics like Thomas Aquinas or reformed, post-Reformation reformed scholastics like Francis Turretin. And the way they would do theology is they would ask a question. And then in answering it, they would either say, we affirm or we deny. And um, and then scholastics had this third category, this third way of answering that would say, we distinguish. Mm-hmm. That is like basically saying, 
uh, it's really complicated. We need to nuance it more. And so when, when asking the question of like, does God love everyone? I think the answer should be, we distinguish. Um, historically, people have talked about three kinds of loves of God, um, which just makes sense. Like there's not one kind of love that I have. Th- mm. There's a kind of love that I personally have for all people. And then there's a distinct kind of love that I have for my wife. And so like, when you ask the question of like, Greg, do you love everyone? I'm like, well, it, are you asking in the way that I love my wife? Then it's definitely no. Or, or in all people. Um, and then it's yes. And we do the same thing with God. So the first kind of love that God has would be like his universal love that he has for all things. Um, God has a general, um, gracious and positive dispo- disposition toward all that he has made. The sunsets and the flowers and the trees and, you know, the deer and mm-hmm. everything that he has made, he, he smiles towards. Um, that's his universal love. The second kind of love he has toward all human beings, that um, there is a special uniqueness that human beings have by virtue of being made in God's image that sunsets don't have. And so he loves human beings, particularly in a unique way. And then there is a third kind of love that God has um, that's reserved for his covenant people. Uh, The blessings of the covenant he shows toward his covenant people. And that's not a love for everybody. This is a love for his covenant people. And so when we ask, does God love everyone, according to the first two kinds of love, absolutely, God loves everyone uh, with his whole heart. And then when we ask, does God love everyone, if we're referring to the third kind of love that's reserved for his covenant people, the answer has to be um, no, because not everyone is his covenant child. Yeah. So that was a really quick answer, but I hope it summarized it. Well. Yeah, it's it's really helpful, and thanks for this question and thanks for that answer. Uh, and we had a second one that kind of came in along the same lines. So I'm going to read it here for us, and we'll we'll throw it around. It says also a reference was made to John three sixteen, famous verse. Tim Tebow had a written on his little on, on his face during games, like a lot of people know it. Uh, but this verse should suggesting that Christ loved and died for everyone in the world, for God so loved the world. Doesn't this idea run contrary to the doctrine of limited atonement, which I assume you embrace? So Greg, can you kind of lay out for us what limited atonement is, what that doctrine even means, and then how do we reconcile John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, with this idea? Right. So the term limited atonement um, comes from that five-point acronym TULIP that kind of summarizes some distinctive parts of a Reformed soteriology. That five-point summarization came from the Synod of Dort in the 17th century, 1618 to 1619, that synod was held. And... And that L, that limited atonement, says basically that Jesus only died for Mm. some people. Now, that can sound like really harsh and abrasive at first, but we really have to qualify it. First, we should say, basically, it's universally agreed, limited atonement is not a helpful way of describing that belief. Um, Particular redemption or definite atonement are better adjectives. Um, but limited atonement is not the most helpful. Secondly, it gets really confusing when we ask, what do we mean by for? 
when we say Jesus died for um, yeah. just some people. Um, and I just don't think we have enough time to answer that there. But I will say there is a sense in which Jesus' death is for everyone um, in that it is sufficient for everyone. Um, if everybody in the world believed, Jesus wouldn't have had to suffer more. His death is sufficient for everyone, um, but it is efficient. That is, it's only actually um, for his covenant people. Um, so I don't know if that made things more confusing or less confusing. No, it was really helpful. And I do think that distinction of efficient for all, sorry, sufficient for all and efficient for some is really helpful. Because we're not saying that the death of Christ, it wasn't valuable enough or it wasn't powerful enough to redeem all. It definitely was, but only efficient for some, those whom the Father has elected. Right. Or another way of talking about it would be like, you could ask the question, did Jesus' death make salvation for sinners possible or... Did Jesus' death achieve salvation for sinners? Right. Yeah. That's probably a more helpful nuance without all the issues in there. Yeah. Um, so you dropped a word in there. I just, want, I just want to always be building everyone's vocabulary here. You said the word soteriology, which has many syllables. So do you want to define that word for us? Yeah. It's just the, the study or the doctrine, the logic of salvation. Yeah. So, great. Yeah, thanks. I just wanted to make sure we kind of, anytime we throw out some large words, we work to define them. That's a good them. call. Yeah. Um, so, thanks for that answer. Really helpful. I'm sure this probably might have left some people with more questions. Um, this conversation can tend to do that. Yes. So, we're all working to understand theology more and understand how the mechanics of our, our God's love for the world and and his atonement, how those two things work together. And so we think that limited atonement and TULIP provides a, a good framework, and we're always looking to explore it more, to understand it more, to really have our nose in scriptures and prayerfully kind of work through these concepts together. So we so appreciate this question. We welcome conversations and questions of this type. Um, if anything's too, too difficult, we'll definitely get Matt and Steve in here. We'll get the A-team, and they'll have A-team answers. Um, but we're hopeful we can, this can help you navigate and help give some quick answers to these questions. Let's encourage you to, to keep on thinking, to keep on studying Scripture, and to keep on working through this as we really just seek to understand God more and His love for us and His love for the world. Yeah, absolutely. I will say one devotional thought that I've had about like limited atonement, definite atonement, particular redemption, whatever you want to call it recently, has been... It is because of that doctrine that I can think about the death of Jesus Christ and then say to myself, Greg, that was for you. Mm. Like, that was for you. It secured your adoption as a son of the living God. And so it is because of that doctrine that I can have the assurance and the security that when I think about what Jesus did, I can say, that was for me. Because I'm a part of the covenant family, and therefore, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know that Jesus has purchased me and that it was his blood that was shed for me and not a single blood drop of blood of Jesus was shed in vain. Um, so yeah. Um, Anthony. Yeah. I have a question for you. Oh, this no. one comes from last week's sermon. Okay. Um, that Matt preached. Um, 
the the question asker writes this talking about the celebration of Christ's birth mm -hmm. and the uncertainty of the actual date when would Christmas have become such a mainstream celebration got it so when would Christmas have become such a mainstream mainstream celebration well yeah it's really tough and I've read some articles and tried to really parse out what to make of this whole discussion of the historicity of December 25th as a date of Christmas and how much Christmas was celebrated in the early church. And like a lot of other things, a lot of historians don't always agree on such things. And this is a pretty a pretty big debate in the Christian history realm. Um, but one thing that we know for sure is that it definitely, the Christian celebration and the early church celebration of Christmas definitely dated later than Easter. They celebrated Easter, the death and resurrection of Jesus, much, much sooner in the Christian calendar and in history than they did the celebration of Christmas. And so what we know is that some, there was an interest in the celebration of the birth of Jesus early-ish on in Christian history, probably like the 200s. Uh, but then something happened where Constantine, uh, the Roman emperor, became a Christian and did this thing called the Edict of Milan in 313, which made Christianity kind of like the state religion. Uh, and so in that process, what Constantine did was he took some pagan some pagan holidays, the winter solstice, particularly uh, Sol Invictus, which was the day of the unconquered sun, which was December 25th. Uh, and that was celebrated in, amongst pagan people. And then Christian, the Christian celebration of Christmas kind of got layered into that, and that's really what made it widespread. Now, that's not to say that our celebration of Christmas was just a fabrication of Constantine. Not true. Uh, again, there was some interest in, in early Christendom to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Uh, not all of it was on December 25th. It was at different times, and, and that is kind of murky as to the exactly which when they were when people when Christians start to start to celebrate the birth of Christ and the incarnation, what we celebrate for Advent season. But what we know is that what really popularized it was Constantine and um, kind of merging these two holidays as he was kind of expanding mm -hmm. his empire here. So I know that's kind of a vague answer, uh, but we're still historians are still working through this whole thing. Um, and there are some evidences that, or, and there are some like codices and stuff that list this day of Sol Invictus along with the Christian, the, Christ, the Christian celebration of Christmas. And so it's like a, it's always had a historical question of really which one led to the other. And so, again, maybe not the most helpful answer, but I hope that answers something for you. But we've been celebrating Christmas for a long, long time. It definitely predates, in some ways. We have some evidence that it predates Constantine, um, and it's not our celebration of Christmas is not just like a a way to Christianize pagans. There's a lot more to it than that. Right. And honestly, either way, it's it's not that big of a deal. If Christmas, as celebrated by Christians, came first, then obviously that's not a problem. But also, if like if if Christians took a pagan holiday and like transformed it. That's also not a problem either. Like that's what Christians do to culture. It's like we we'll take your holidays and we'll make them better. And we'll make them about Jesus. Yeah. And we did it with Christmas and we'll do it with, you know, Toyotathon next. It's like any anything's fair game cuz Christians revolutionize and redeem culture. Yeah. Um and so that either one of those two 
is not a problem. All right, Anthony, I have our, our fourth and final question for you about your sermon. I can't um, believe we have gone through our big bag of questions already. It's so sad, isn't it? God, these presents the are going to pale in comparison. <laughs> so you preached about um, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel was the, the, the hymn. And um, so you talked a lot about Emmanuel means God with us. Um, and the question is just this. What does it mean? that God is with us? How is God with us now? Yeah, great question. I am so glad you asked. This is a part in the I sermon. I feel God in this chilies tonight. <laughs> uh, this is a question I, I wanted to really address in my sermon, but we did coffee and cocoa that day, and so I know a little bit shorter time, and the smell, especially for the first sermon, the first service, folks, the smell of all that food kind of wafting over it, w- it would shorten my attention span for sure, so I'm sure that had a, a mass effect there. Um, so talking about God with us, I brought up that this idea is really throughout Matthew. Matthew starts with Emmanuel uh, being God with us as the angel was reciting this prophecy that was given to um, Isaiah back in Isaiah. Um, and then again at the end, as Jesus has the Great Commission moment before he ascends, uh, he says, go make disciples of all the nations, and, and I am with you. So that instruction to go and make disciples, and then really that promise that he will be with us in that. And I want to explore this idea of, of okay, that, that's something I want us to take comfort in. I want us to really relish that God is near, that God is here. But what does that mean? So I have two quick quick things written down about what it means that, that Christ is with us, um, or that God is with us. So one... God is with us through the Holy Spirit. So in John 14, Christ is talking about his eventual ascension, and he is saying, but I will send you someone like me. Uh, that, and, then, and then expands there in John 14, and that someone being the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is God. Obviously, we worship a Trinitarian God. Um, so the Holy Spirit is one that indwells us, that seals us, uh, that comforts us. Sometimes I think that we think the Holy Spirit just in, just instructs us or just kind of helps us to uh, fight sin and, and, and live a holy life. And that's true. That's, that's the truth. He very much does that. He very much conforms us into the image of Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, all those things in us worked by the Spirit. But there's also a real sense where the Spirit gives us comfort, where the Spirit gives us peace, where the Spirit works in us joy. Uh, and so there's a very real sense there and we're, that God is with us and within us and working in us and comforting us like as a friend. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Even like in our physical bodies. Like yeah. Paul says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not like right. in your soul. It's like he lives in your, you know, in your skin and your bones. Right. Like he's, he's here. He's actually here. Yeah. Which is wild and awesome. And two, the church. So throughout the New Testament, the church is referred to as the body of Christ in which he is the head. And then going back to Matthew, in Matthew 18, after that kind of church discipline packet, uh, passage, Jesus says, where one or two are gathered in my name, or two or three, not one can't be gathered, but where two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be in the midst. And it's something we say a lot, but I think really wrapped up in that idea is that he is present through his body. We are his actual hands and feet. So the presence of Christ is actually in the church, in his body. And so as we, as we care for each other, as we comfort each other, as we help each other, as we're friends with each other and work toward this common goal, that is the hands and feet of Christ with us. Mm. 
And so, and among us and through us. And I think that's another way that, that God is with us. Yeah. I'd even add like in the church, like God is with us in the sacraments in a unique way as well. Like yeah. when we, when we get baptized, when we enter into the covenant community, there's a special presence of Christ as we like die with him and are raised with him through mm. the waters of life. And then two, um, in the, in the supper. Yeah. Like Christ is present in the supper, not physically, but spiritually present. Calvin talks about us, like the, the spirit lifts our souls up to heaven and we feast upon the resurrected Christ. Yeah. And so we experience true communion with the triune God every single week in a unique, tangible, tactile way when we eat the supper. Um, and also, like, God is with us by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ. Mm. Our whole lives, body and soul, are united to our risen Savior and are with us. We, have, we do not have a great high priest, the author of Hebrews says, who is unable to empathize with us in our suffering. Which, like, the inverse of that is, it's assumed that Christ empathizes with us yeah. in heaven. We have an older brother who is raised to life, who feels what we feel, presumably when we feel it. Yeah. So there's, there genuinely, there is not any situation that you go through in life that the risen Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, does not also go through with you, feeling what you feel, empathizing with you and for you. Um, and so in a, in a very we, real human emotional way, God is with us like every single step of the way. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Great question. I really wish I could put a little bit more of this into the sermon, but glad this question was asked. Glad we got to kind of talk about it here. And I hope that you really find comfort because I definitely did when I was preparing the sermon, like so much comfort that God is with us, that he's here. It's a beautiful thing. Mm. All right, Greg, I think I'm looking through our bag here, kind of shuffling through, and, you know, we're fresh out. It's an empty bag. It's an empty bag. So that means that you guys have to write us some more questions for us to answer. And then we'll be back with the New Year's bag of, of questions, which is always fun. All right, so you guys have a good Christmas. Have a Merry Christmas. Drink some coffee, some hot chocolate, whatever you do. Cozy up. Enjoy this podcast. Enjoy the season. Have a great day. Then the B team B side. Thank you for listening to the Sermon B side podcast. For more resources and information about our church, visit www.libertyharrisburg.org. That's liberty with an I, harrisburg.org.